This is IFS Talks, an audio series to deepen connection with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users. Today on IFS Talks, we're welcoming and talking to Anne Cinco. Anne Cinco, LMFT, has 30 years of clinical experience and is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Connecticut. She's in private practice and has been teaching as an adjunct professor in the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Central Connecticut State University for 25 years. Anne has integrated IFS theory and technique in all facets of her creative work with families, couples, individuals, and groups. She has a background in Gestalt therapy and uses sand tray therapy in her work with clients. Anne conducts continuing education workshops on legacy burdens and creative externalization of parts. She brings her down-to-earth, concrete style along with her sense of humor to teaching and training, and Anne has been a lead IFS trainer since 2007. She has also authored a chapter on legacy burdens in Martha Sweezy and Ellen Ziskin's Innovations and Elaborations in IFS. Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you, Anne, for having us. How is it for you, Anne, to hear this bio? What parts come up? Um, well, there's always the little shy part, the young parts that go, who are they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but I've had to do a lot of updating. And um, being a trainer, being a teacher, um, my parts have really begun to settle in and trust that there is this old wise woman um, that can actually be the one that does these sort of things. So I'm aware of them kind of in my gut, but um, they give me space to be here with you. Could you please tell us a bit about your journey into the mental health profession? Was there something in your personal life that was determinant for your becoming a psychotherapist? Well, my father passed away very unexpectedly uh, when I was 18. I had just graduated from high school and... Um, before the fall, he died in August. Um, I didn't even think I wanted to go to college, but um, my mother got on her knees and said, please go. So um, I, my whole family got very untethered. And so I went to college and tried to write papers on grief and parent loss and um, when it came time to graduate, I didn't feel like I was ready to go out in the world yet. It was kind of like, was my safe family being in college. Mm -hmm. So I went through the graduate catalog and I said, oh, marriage and family therapy. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I stayed in school a couple more years and got my degree. I had no idea I wanted to be a therapist before that, other than um, this following the trail of grief. So it was grief that led you to this profession somehow. You were grieving your father at 18, you said? Yes. Yeah. And I also, I got my undergraduate degree in public health. And public health, you, there's so many different aspects of it. And I was really drawn to the mental health aspect of public health. So that was the other 
road that led me to psychotherapy. And you felt good at this field since the beginning. It was never strange for you. It just fits you. It never was strange for me. It, 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 I took to immediately. I started seeing families when I was 24 years old. Um, it, and it just felt like where I belonged. Wonderful. And when did you get into the IFS trainings? Well, that's kind of a fun story. Um, I was teaching at Central Connecticut State University and uh, since 1995, and it was infused in all the classes because there was a book called Meta Frameworks, which yep. is mm -hmm. like six domains, if you're familiar with it, of understanding human systems. So IFS was one of them. And that was the basis. Ralph Cohen set up that, that master's program. And the IFS was one of the areas that we integrated into every course in the program. And then Ralph met Dick and said, hey, do you want to come to the university and do a training? So it was really the first training on the East Coast was in Connecticut at Central. And um, Ralph kept saying, Ann, come take this training. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do another training. <laughs> so I had been teaching the model since 95 in different classes that I was teaching. And finally, the, so the first training was in 98. So in 2001, I finally, he finally talked me into doing the training. And I was in a home group with Tony Herbine Blank mm -hmm. and Paul Neustadt wow. and mm -hmm. Mona Barbera was a, uh, also a participant in that. So many trainings, Pam Krause was a PA. It was her first PA in that program. So many of the current trainers came out of those early days in Connecticut. So uh, it was very ex a very exciting time. It was like a grassroots movement. Um, and I took the training and my husband's a therapist. I said, honey, I am on a train speeding out of the station. I need you to get on board. <laughs> and so he took the training the next year. And how was it? How, how did it fit? You came from a family therapy training, right? Yes. So how was it for you coming from this, I believe, uh, um, so much focused on the context and the external context, and then you go inside in a quite different, almost psychodynamic way. How was it for you, this shifting process? Well, I think because of my Gestalt training, and it, it fit perfectly, actually. It, it, it felt like just a natural, I didn't have to change any of my beliefs. I just needed to learn the technique because I've always believed that people have everything they need inside of them and that the job of the therapist is to help release that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was a belief I had even before IFS. So it felt like just a better roadmap okay. for me mm -hmm. than um, the models that I had been using. Mm -hmm. So it felt very natural. I'm curious how that, that first training was for you and you know, how it was maybe different than trainings now, if it was more experiential, if it was less? Well, I was so excited by what I was learning. 
So I just, I remember it very, very fondly. Um, it was way less organized than they are now. Um, there, there seemed like there was a bit more uh, movement. We did, we did a more psychodrama kinds of things. And uh, when I took the training, it was uh, Dick and Mitchie Rose were the trainers. Um, and so they, Mitchie's very experiential. Um, and also spiritual, right? Very spiritual. Very spiritual. Yeah. And and how, how did it land in you this this experiential and and spiritual set of minds that I believe meet well, you? Well the the funny thing is is back then Dick really wanted to, you know, get on board in the psychotherapy world. So it was kind of like a shh, it's not a it's not a psycho spiritual. That was model. my guess. Yes. 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 So it was really just trying to prove its e efficacy um, just as a psychotherapy model, not as a psycho-spiritual model. Um, but I remember in my first training, I just said, well, they're talking about God, <laughs> just like that. And I remember people like, oh, <laughs> kind of having a reaction to that. So, yeah, I, again, it has never been, it's been a spiritual path for me, the more IFS work that I do, the more I feel like I deepen into my spirituality. So they, they can't be separated. Can you say a little bit more about that? I feel like that's a really important point. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the more my parts heal, the more I know my own worth and the more I believe in our individual divinity and our oneness um and and one one thing that you know when you teach the the eight c's is self knows we're all connected yeah really getting to know that in our bones just seems like it it is part of the the healing work that gets done mitchy rose used to say it's all the same one thing lots of different roads to get there but all the same one thing so at that time when you met Michi and Dick and all the others you just mentioned, this um, open mind, spiritual open mind, there was space in you already for that open-minded approach to therapy? Yes. Yes, I think it was, it was already there. Just waiting for the right thing to open it up. <laughs> wow, that was the early 90s or the late, the late 90s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and since you became an IFS therapist, how did that change you and your practice as a therapist? Well, I think being trained as a family therapist really helped me understand systems. So, mm -hmm. um, kind of having permission to take what I knew inside people and and also then taking it inside helped me understand even outside systems better so um understanding that there are protected parts and protector parts uh that's a game changer mm -hmm. that's a game changer not demonizing any of our parts but understanding their positive intention uh, 
that really made it possible for me to work with anyone with any issue. And the other thing that I really liked about IFS is it really brought me into the equation as the therapist. You know, not just a therapist that that knows the theory and tries to help people change, but what parts of me are in the room and how am I having impact? You know, instead of just reflecting on that in supervision, but in the moment when I'm working with someone, um, that relational impact was, that really changed too, having that awareness of my parts in the room. It becomes much more of a, who is present with the client than what techniques does the one yeah. that is there has. Yeah, it's so different. Yes. So, and have you ever done some IFS personal work? Oh, yeah. Many, 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 <laughs> many years of it. So when I, let's see, I started IFS when I was 38. And when I was 40, I got diagnosed with MS. And I, that's when I got into therapy. I kept saying, I got to get into therapy. I got to do my own IFS therapy. Mm -hmm. I'm a pretty happy person. I didn't feel like I was suffering. So I, I didn't mm -hmm. get into therapy right away. But when I got that diagnosis, I got into therapy. And I did a very deep inquiry into why I had an overactive immune system. And um, I got a lot of answers. And uh, knock on wood, I am a very, very healthy person and uh, have, have stayed very healthy for 17 years. So, Wow. So the MS hasn't been regressive. It has been. not. It has not. Yeah. I, th I had one flare in 17 years. Wow. It was pretty minimal. That's incredible. So... Was it hard to, you know, I always find this challenge in working with those tough physical or somatic parts that a lot of parts in our systems have a hard time getting space around not liking. Was it hard to get self-energy towards the MS? It really was. It was scary. Like, you know, don't ask questions that you don't want the answers to. <laughs> <laughs> So I felt, I felt I had parts that were more scared than disliking of. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. And basically what I learned was that my overactive immune system kept me very safe in my family growing up, never having to be sick and have to stay home alone or get other certain relatives to take care of me. And it was, you know later in my life, when my life got really safe, that I didn't need an overactive immune system, that I started having these MS symptoms. And so did that, did that part need to know that you were safe? Did it need to be updated or? Well, parts needed to come out of silence and let me know the things that did happen. And then, yeah, lots of updating. That one I can't underline enough. Like parts need to be updated all the time because they get stuck in time. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. It's a good underline. Very welcome. Yes. Totally agree. And in your clinical work, do you combine IFS? You still combine IFS with other modalities when needed? How 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 it happens? Um, 
basically IFS is the way that I understand how systems function. Mm -hmm. So I'm always doing IFS and everything else that I do is a tool to get parts to unblend and begin to have an experience of self. So, you know, I may use some DBT, CBT Mm -hmm. stuff, um, but it's, it's all in service of unblending. So IFS inform. Yes. Like it, it's a tool to get parts to trust. Mm-hmm. So, so you can integrate. Everything has been integrated. Mm-hmm. Yes. And tell us, how did you get into this special interest in legacy burdens? Well, my interest in legacy burdens started in grad school when I was really drawn to the intergenerational models, Bowen, Naj, um, where they talked about you can't even understand a family if you don't look at it in the frame of at least three generations. Okay. So I found myself very much drawn to those models. And um, I also have a family history where um, my father died at age 43, his father died at 43, and my great-grandfather died at 42. So this early loss in the family line. Mm. Young men. Young men, yes, yes. And two of them, my father and his father were heart, and then the grandfather was a, a circulatory, a brain aneurysm. So, mm-hmm. um, And uh, very grateful my brother's still alive. He turned 60 this year. Wow. Uh, but my brother-in-law died in his early 40s. So it's still in my family, even though um, it went out of the bloodline. Um, so interestingly enough, also my father's mother lost, uh, 13 babies because 13 babies, you said, yes, because of the RH factor, they didn't know back then. So my, um, father was first born, so he lived and then they, one of his sisters lived. So my father watched his parents lose 12 of his siblings, 12 children. Wow. And um, I don't have children. And in my IFS work, I came to understand that uh, I didn't want to ever lose. I didn't want to love anything enough to lose it. And that that was a direct Mm -hmm. legacy burden Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from carrying my father's grief. Wow. Wow, what a story. I really believe he died of a broken heart. Right. Right, from, it, from his parents. From his parents. So that was the early 20th century, I believe so. Yes. My father was born in 37. Mm-hmm. 1937. Yes. Mm-hmm. What a story. Thank you so much for sharing. It's huge. It's really... Yeah, and it really has paved the way for me to understand what is it that we carry. Um, that and And IFS has been a way to help people heal from carrying legacy burdens. And we all carry them, right? They, uh, they are everywhere in my clinical practice. I don't know if it's, it's me, uh, in myself also, but more and more in my clients. So there is a lot to do around legacy burdens. Yes. And just to give people that frame, like what you're carrying you didn't create all of it. Mm-hmm. 
even just knowing that begins to ease it, begins to bring a little bit of relief to think that, oh, this this overwhelming grief that's been crushing me isn't all mine. Right. This is IFS Talks, an audio series to deepen connection with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users. Help us with this a little bit, if you can, um, for sure you can. And you say, I believe in your chapter, that legacy burdens are belief systems, emotions, coping mechanisms, memories, and energies that get passed down through the generational line. And you say also legacy burdens are both covertly and overtly passed down through the generations. Yes. So tell us more about covertly and overtly. I mean, sometimes it's really difficult to to see them, to understand if it's a legacy burden, it's not a legacy burden. Is it mm. our experience? It's complex. It is complex. And yet it can be very simple. So covert legacy burdens are just things that get infused in us being born into the family that we're born in. So mine would be talking about my father's grief. That that just is something that I carried mm-hmm. being born into the family that I was born into. In an unconscious way. In an unconscious way. It didn't come from any direct verbal interaction mm-hmm. that I had mm-hmm. or anything that my father said or my mother said. Mm-hmm. Uh, where our overt legacy burdens are, let's say... Um, there's sexual abuse in the family. And Mm -hmm. so people dissociate from their bodies and hate their bodies. So let's say my grandmother really hated her body. Mm -hmm. And then she interacted with my mother. So my mother hated her body, but now she's lost the story because my grandmother never told the story Mm -hmm. of sexual abuse. She just knows that as a woman, you're supposed to hate your body. And then my mother does the same thing to her daughters. So you you go around hating your body. It, it you've directly learned it from your mother, yet it came from a trauma several generations ago. So how could people know if they don't know about their family stories? It's hard to believe for them that can be something like a covert, never told experience from generations behind. So there's questions that we can ask that... Help us to find out. Yes. And you, you say to people, tell me the first thing that comes into your mind. Okay. One I learned from Mitchie Rose, it's called the circle technique, which is you just have someone draw a circle. Okay. And then you think about something you've struggled with your whole life. Okay. And then what you do is you draw the piece of pie. How much of that did you inherit? Very quickly without thinking about it. Draw the piece of pie. Wow. Now, if you if you think about it, then intellect gets in there and it gets, but immediately do it. It's lost. <laughs> when I do this with groups of people, at least three quarters draw more than 50%. Wow. So that's one way of doing it. Or you could just ask, so very quickly, just tell me what percentage did you inherit? <laughs> and people will just give you a number, just even if they, they don't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. So our parts answer. Um, another one is if people like indications, if people's symptoms don't fit their life history, mm. okay? The amount of grief I carried, even though my father died young, 
I was carrying that before he passed, you know, their symptoms don't make sense with their life circumstances and their life history. You know, people that carry a depression are like, I have a good life. Why do I, (laughs) why do I feel so depressed or, you know, why am I so anxious? I, you know, my life's good. So, uh, or when you're listening as a clinician and someone says, well, my mother had this and my father had it and my uncles have it and my brother has it. You know, those are, again, indications that you're, you may be looking at a legacy burden. Um, language that repeats um, or doesn't quite fit this, the situation. I was working with someone and they kept saying, I have to atone. I have to atone. And the the grievance was nothing that you might need to apologize for, but there was mm-hmm. no need for atonement. So, so we can hear it in people's language. Um, so those are some of the ways that, and then we just begin to ask our clients parts and it, it's amazing. They can tell us. Wow. With the more covert legacy burdens, would you say that people's systems just know that they're inherited from the grandmother's sexual abuse trauma? Um, or does, does that matter? Does the system just know that it goes back to the grandmother? Um, sometimes they don't know. Sometimes they, they, they know that it's old. Um, or when you, when you go into a witnessing, sometimes people actually witness um, their ancestors' stories. Uh-huh. And if you yeah. don't have a legacy burden frame, people get really freaked out. Like I'm seeing this horrific stuff that happened and it's not from my lifetime. Right. So could you, then you would say, well, do you think it could belong to any of your ancestors? And they're like, Oh yeah. You know, they grew up in Russia when, you know, all these things were going on or um, it makes much more sense. Um, There's certain things that I hear when I talk about words. Uh, It's not okay to shine. Mm-hmm. Uh, not enough, not enough. Frequently that goes back to a time when there wasn't enough, but then it gets personalized to I'm not enough, but there was not enough food and there was not enough shelter and there was not enough safety. So once you have this lens, you just start asking people about it and they seem to know much more than they ever thought they would about it. How do you feel like that gets, gets, um, gets into our systems? Does it, is it, um, you know, stories and impressions from growing up? Is it in the DNA? All of the above, all of the above. Okay. There is the rules of shame that I think are ways in which, things get reinforced and passed down through the generations, like be perfect, be in control, don't talk about anything vulnerable, don't trust. All of those are ways in which they're behaviorally and verbally passed down. I mean, it's, it's through energy. I think it's injected. I think it is in our DNA. There's a lot of really exciting research now on epigenetics that um, are shown that it is in our, in our DNA and in the clouds that influence our DNA, um, that we do have a, a physical, emotional, 
inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that it's it's all of the above, environment and physical. It can be complex, right? Yes. You should come to Lisbon and help us. Yes. Let's do that. And also complex once once the legacy is identified, how should we proceed? Where I know a bit of the I believe it's a protocol made by Michi Rose. And it's a complex one. It's it has for about twenty-four steps or so. It's a long one. Um, I think that I have a protocol and I think it's more like eight steps. Okay. You know, it's it's very much following the model, which is you get parts to unblend. And one way in which I've tried to, because I, I always try to find the shortest way from point A to point B, mm-hmm. is you call in the highest positive potential of the ancestors. So you start with self. Mm-hmm. And when I'm doing legacy work, I say parts are not welcome. Mm-hmm. It's the only place where parts are not welcome. Only self is welcome because it's about healing an ancestral burden. Okay. Now, some IFS therapists don't clear the generational line. They just re- they identify the legacy burden and they just have people unburden it. They just send it out into light. Or- light, earth, air, water, the way we unburden any other burden. So if you're not comfortable with introducing this generational line clearing, then you can just do it that way. I believe that we actually help heal the planet even more if we clear the whole generational line. And my interest in um, legacy burns also has made me search in many different places for where is this wisdom known? So in shamanism and um, other ancient traditions that, that have always known that there's a way to help heal that which gets passed down to the generations. So bring me back to the, the protocol. The protocol, yes. Complex one. Can be complex, can be simplified. Yes, by just thinking about it as the IFS model. So we start with unblending. We get everybody in um, some self-leadership. Then we witness if need be. Now, the neat thing about legacy burns is frequently they don't need witnessing because they're not our story. Mm -hmm. So parts are really on board. We don't have to do a lot of working with the protective system because okay. once they understand I didn't create these and I don't have to defend again them. They are ready to let it go. Yeah. They're, they're much more likely to let it go. Mm-hmm. So, but same thing we deal with fears and concerns. Then we unblend and, and then we witness if need be, and then we unburden and then mm-hmm. we invite. So we can, when we get to the place of unburdening, you invite in people's children. So yes. we, we clear the line forward. Forward, yes. For the future. And then into the future, and then we and pass it back to, let's say, the client. And then you have the client pass it back. You can make a statement like, in, invite in all and any ancestors, known and unknown. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes what people, they they only know back to their grandparents, but when they do this, they see this whole line of ancestors Mm -hmm. that they know nothing about. That's really not that uncommon. 
have you noticed shifts in your own family's um, uh, experience after doing Legacy Burdens? You've done a lot of work. My brother's alive. <laughs> that one is huge. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't even know the work I've done on trying to save his life. <laughs> he doesn't need. Doesn't need to know. He wouldn't get it. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. Yes. I feel, you know, huge shifts in myself. I've seen huge shifts in my clients, you know, unburdening legacy burdens. Because if you figure, let's say you're carrying, you know, this 100% of this depression, if 50% of it gets unburdened, that makes the other 50% a lot easier to work with. Yeah, makes sense. And you are organizing with um, Mike Level 2 on Anxiety and Depression. Yes. I'm trying to book one too, you know. Yes. Could you tell us more about uh, this training and how this connects with legacy burdens? Well, the um, training is on shame, anxiety, and depression. Exactly. So it's very, uh, you know, it's taking a look at how shame actually is in my belief and Mike's belief at the core of anxiety and depression. Okay. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically it's about deepening your understanding of constellations of parts because we mm -hmm. frequently work with one part, but it's never about one part. It's about okay. a constellation of parts. You know, free, you know, with clients, you rarely does someone talk about depression without anxiety or anxiety without depression. They're, mm -hmm. They pretty much go together and um, have protective mechanisms. That's, you know, to, to understand them instead of these terrible, horrible symptoms we want to get rid of, to understand that they're part of trying to protect us from something. So that training will be really about deepening your understanding of shame and and how we go about exiling that and then the symptoms that come out of it how our internal systems use anxiety and depression to help protect us from shame and then to understand polarizations <laughs> much more deeply because that's really what we're talking about the inner polarizations and the more extreme they get the more uh, symptoms we see that actually end up in addictive cycles. Mm -hmm. And in that we cover legacy burdens mm -hmm. because that's a huge part. Shame is one of the feelings that gets passed down through the generations and we can see it yes. through behavior and we can see it in language and we can see it uh, in how we relate to one another mm -hmm. and how we parent. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's a good one to draw a circle. To start with shame. Yes. See how much is inherited. Yes. And the more disenfranchised your culture has been, the more shame you have um, on, a, on a societal level as well. Mm. It is. Mm. So there is really a, a legacy burden's role in depression, anxiety, and shame. Absolutely. Absolutely. And could you, could we just... Um, say uh, something about being an, IF, an IFS trainer once you are a, an IFS lead trainer for now? Almost 13 years, 12, 13 years. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Long time. Long time. Yeah, can you tell us about your journey to becoming a trainer? Um, well, like I said, when it started, I was 
feeling like I was part of this grassroots movement and, and um, IFS was just really starting to grow when I took, back then it was called your basic training. And um, I thought, oh, I would like to be a trainer. But my parts um, were scared of that and they blocked me. But Mitchie Rose would not let me forget that I had said that. <laughs> And she really did mentor me a great deal. And she, you know, she, she really believed that I would, should be a trainer. And um, she made sure that I wasn't going to let my parts take me out. <laughs> so. Do you keep connection with Michi nowadays? Um, you know, I do see her every year at the conference and um, I'm always oh, yeah. really happy mm -hmm. to see her. And um, she used to come out every couple of years and do workshops for us here in Connecticut because she has a huge fan club here. Um, yes, but she doesn't, I don't think she likes to travel anymore so much. So she hasn't been out in several years. So, mm -hmm. but she has much, much to teach much to teach and she, it sounds like she helped you unblend from some of your parts and and let you open the door to to becoming the amazing trainer that you are oh well she did yeah i was lucky yeah. enough to be one of your participants yeah. lucky you oh thank you I, and i think that it's it was kind of uh my mission in life that um if you had asked me if I was going to be a, a teacher and someone that stood up in front of groups, and I would have thought you were crazy when I was a kid. I, would, I was so scared to speak in public. And um, so I, I feel like I'm, I'm following my path. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Your shy parts are more and more healed or still healing. They are. They are. And they realize, I, I have to tell them, like, you don't have to do this. <laughs> There's like this old lady who can do this. <laughs> She's been doing it a long time. She's really good at it. Well done. <laughs> 13 years, more. And what about your future? You have a long future for sure. And a shiny one or interesting one regarding future as a trainer and uh, as a, an IFS practitioner. What? Are you looking for? What are your best expectations? You know, I'm kind of in a place where I'm asking myself those questions. And I like to listen for my guidance. And um, I really am excited about this new level two that, that Mike and I are going to be doing. It's going to be the first? The first one? This is the first one. Wow. It will be in the beginning of December. So it's been a couple of years coming to fruition. But yes, it will be the first one on shame, anxiety, and depression. And then I would like to work mm -hmm. with Kay Gardner around creating a new level nice. two on spirituality. Wow. I will register for that one too. Yes. And um, I am feeling a calling to start doing retreats on grief. Yeah. That we, as, as communities, we need to come together in community and help each other with our grief. Um, because I, I believe that we don't have enough places. And, and um, if you're not familiar with the book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Not much, um, no. 
I would totally recommend it because he talks about the five gates of grief and um, okay. Bruce Weller is his name. And the five gates of grief are just regular, are loss, shame, mm-hmm. what's oh, called shame. loss of expectation, which is still in our DNA. We expect to be loved, nurtured, and supported by a tribe. And we're grieving that, that we've lost community. Mm-hmm. The village. We've lost our villages, yes. But it's still, there's, so there's a knowing that this is supposed to happen for us and that we don't get it. So there's a grief there. Um, legacy is one of the gates. And then the fifth one is the earth, that we have a lot of grief about the state of the earth and what we've done to the earth. Yeah, it sounds like there's so much death. It looks really interesting. Really needed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I've introduced this to so many people and they're like, oh, that's mm-hmm. a thing. I thought it was just me. You know, the, the loss of expectation or the deep grief around the earth. Yeah. So it's kind of like legacy burdens. People go, oh, it's not just me. Yeah. <laughs> so creating a retreat at some, some arena for connection around all of it. Sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we could just see that you can bring so much more yet to IFS, to the IFS world, with those wonderful plans for your coming topics and trainings. And um, as for the IFS model, what, what future do you foresee? Well, the IFS model is more concretized than it's ever been, but it's still evolving. That's one thing that Mitchie Rose said that why she loved IFS so much Mm. is that she said it's organic. It continues to grow. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I, I love teaching the basics and I believe I'm, I'm very good at it. So I still see myself teaching the basics and I feel like every time I do a level one, I deepen Mm -hmm. with the basics, but I also see um, I need for using the model as as the base, but understanding our our legacy burdens and our spirituality. I guess those are the two areas that um, I'm very much drawn to. Wonderful. So, and I thank you so much for having us. I'm very very grateful for this wonderful conversation with you it was a joy to be here with you and tisha and i hope we can meet again and share this model our work and our lives is there any way that our listeners find you or find out more about your work you have this wonderful chapter on the on the innovations book and uh, you just announced uh, your wonderful projects for other eventually level two topics on IFS that are so much needed? Um, Well, thank you so much for inviting me to this interview today. And I would be happy to um, just take people's email addresses and let them know what I'm doing and when maybe a a training. I mean, trainings will always be listed on On the website, the Institute's website. Yes. They will find you. Yes. And I have parts that think it's time to write a book, and I have other parts that say, no way. (laughs) No way. (laughs) 
Yes, it's a lot of work and a lot of sitting time, I believe so. Yes. I think I would rather right now um, help create trainings and training manuals more yeah. than books. Yeah, very welcome. I love to hear your your wonderful plans for IFS for the new topics. Yeah, you make a, a training on shame, anxiety, and depression seem really fun. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah, and I'm really hoping to do much more of that uh, with Mike. So uh, we would love to come to Lisbon. This was an IFS Talks episode, an audio series to deepen connections with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users.